0: Welcome to Rural Remix, your source for deeper, richer stories about life in rural places. Where do horror movies happen? Small towns, dark forests, cornfields, and farmhouses have each been the locations for iconic scary films. But why are rural settings so popular, and how do these choices affect the areas represented? The Rural Horror Picture Show is a five-part series that explores the often flawed but always interesting depiction of rural people and places in horror movies. Today, we are thinking about who the instigators of terror are in horror movies, and why it matters whether they're from urban or rural areas. Hello, and welcome to the Rural Horror Picture Show. This is the first episode in a five-episode series talking about rural horror movies. I'm Anya Slepian. I'm Susanna Brown. And before we dive into the the juicy, spooky content of today's <laughs> first episode, uh, I do just have a quick question for you, Susanna, which is, what is your relationship with horror movies? Ooh, well, I think, to be honest, I have not really been a massive horror movie fan for maybe any part of my life (laughs) Um, I do think I've always really respected the horror movie genre as something like I totally get why so many people are really into it it's a really fun like community experience Mm -hmm. people get so excited about whether it's like theory of horror movies Mm -hmm. history of horror movies watching them together I've just always been a little bit too afraid and a little Ah. bit honestly like Grossed out? <laughs> sure. So I think I've like steered towards the genre of horror movie that's a little more on the thriller side and a little yeah. less on the blood and guts and screaming side. Perfect. Because we have a lot of <laughs> blood, guts, and screaming coming up in this podcast. Yes. I would say that is the main thing that we're going on. What about you? Uh yeah, you know, I, I was thinking about it and I'm sort of with you where I've not been a major horror fan I've my line whenever people say that they you know hey do you want to watch the scary movie I'll be like sure but you have to hold my hand the whole time um so I, I very much do it like I'm a you know if there's like social drinkers I'm a social horror movie watcher I don't <laughs> tend to do it by myself which you know has changed because we got paid to do it so here I am watching horror movies at like 3 p.m. in the middle of the office but lights on is lights changed. on like the 3 p.m. horror movie watch kind mm. of a game changer for someone who maybe isn't that into horror movies <laughs> yeah no tried next to window, uh, surrounded by people. Um, I was in a co-working space and everybody else was just, you know, doing their, I don't know, taxes, who knows. Um, (laughs) And I was just sitting there watching just people getting gruesomely murdered, but it helped me. Yeah. You just don't want anyone to look at your screen. Oh my God. No, it was so embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think I I learned to appreciate horror, even though a lot of the movies we watch were not my favorite. Mm -hmm. I do think like having to watch so many, you kind of fall into like an appreciation for what they're maybe trying to do even if I didn't always think they succeeded yeah no and I I agree with that I think that's something that was interesting too is because we had such a a broad span of of different times Mm -hmm. right we I think our I mean our earliest movie was 1931 and that was sort of a a (laughs) throw-in just for just for the history girlies um but really we started in earnest in the 70s and then jumped decades a bit more yeah, and, and seeing sort of what people were doing with really low budgets yeah. um coming up with this stuff that ended up defining decades of a future horror. Like you you can't help but be impressed. <laughs> I will say that one of the, you know, for when it comes to the Hills Have Eyes, et cetera, I was like, honestly, the spookiest thing about this is the gender politics. Um, but <laughs> we'll get into that later. <laughs> yeah, so now that we've admitted our, our dirty secret that we're not necessarily the biggest original horror fans, but are sort of newcomers to this to this genre. Yep. Susanna, you are sort of the captain of the ship today. You're going to lead us on this great adventure. <laughs> what are we talking about today? Yeah, you. why don't you just tell us? So today we're going to be talking about one of the more common tropes and situations that we see in a lot of horror movies and something that really was a big driver of us wanting to make this podcast, which is an idea of kind of who is bringing the spook, who's bringing the evil, who's bringing the horror to these movies. So I want to actually start with this term that I think we'll probably be talking about a lot throughout the series, but this is a term that was coined by Carol J. Clover in this book that I honestly did not read, but I think <laughs> Anya did. Um, I mean, My computer is actually sitting on top of it right perfect. now. Perfect. <laughs> uh, it's called Men, Women, and Chainsaws. Great title. Great title. Carol coined the term urbanoya. You may think that urbanoia is a uh, fear of the urban, as that's what the, the linguistics might say, but it's actually kind of the opposite, which is that there's folks uh, who are from the city. Often they are teenagers or young people in a lot of these movies. And they go into a rural space, um, whether that's into the woods, um, maybe a small town, or just sort of the countryside. And what happens is they begin to be kind of hunted down or stalked or tormented by these homicidal locals. So it's this urban fear of the country, but honestly more a fear of the people who live there. Mm. And there there was a quote in... An article that we both read that uh, said, if these films are to be believed, we fear not just the hills, but the hillbillies. Mm. And that's kind of this trope that is in just so many of these movies. And we, you know, instantly noticed this and found it over and over again. Yeah, like what's your relationship with this concept of urbanoya in movies? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's interesting that you pointed it out as sort of one of the the main tropes, because since I admittedly didn't know a ton about horror movies before we got started, I feel like that was the thing that I did know. And actually, I mean, I hate to tell you all this. The name of our podcast is a little bit of false advertising because we're really not going to be talking about the Rocky Horror Picture Show, um, but instead the rural horror pictures. And then this is a show about it. But <laughs> here we can have one chance to bring it up. Um, and that, you know, that is a movie that is just tropes on tropes on tropes on tropes with a little bit of queer wackiness uh, all around, also. And um, that movie, right, borrows that trope that we're all using all the time, which is here comes the young couple. They're trying to get from point A to point B, but somewhere in between they have a breakdown and then they get they have to go into the scary castle and then things happen. Right. And that is that same premise um, that we see over and over and over again, not only in the movies that we watched, but in sort of the horror canon uh throughout. And so, yeah, I'd say that Urbanoia, though I didn't have a word for it earlier, um, is definitely one of the things that I knew about when I came into this project. Yeah, totally. And I think that like what you just said of, you know, a young couple trying to get from point A to point B was the thing that I hadn't quite registered as being (laughs) scary, because I think I think of like horror movies, you know, there's the constant the the joke is like you're telling the characters no don't don't go in there don't go into the basement don't open that door but now as we watch these movies I'm like oh the thing is don't go on a road trip don't travel (laughs) don't exist and like stay where you are (laughs) yeah which is sort of a, a wild thing to be telling people to be afraid of which is like don't Uh, expand your horizons to new parts of the country. (laughs) Right. Because anybody or anything could happen once you get there. Yeah. I'd say that that's a little problematic. uh, You'd agree. (laughs) I I would agree. Definitely. So, I mean, this trope and this experience of Urban Oya is the most common thing in the movies we watched and kind of throughout the genre. But what I actually wanted to focus on for today's episode is the reverse which is way less common but i think super interesting um which is when these urban dwellers as we described before they are the ones bringing the spook they are causing Mm -hmm. the problems and often it's that they are bringing some sort of evil to a rural area and like i said there's not tons of examples but i do think the ones that there are are really interesting and can give us a lot of insight into into the pervasiveness of a of rural stereotype in horror movies it's sort of like the exception that defines the rule and so mm-hmm. you know the more that you're saying oh this is what i'm seeing all the time somewhere else how is this one different um that lets you actually say okay no actually it's pretty messed up <laughs> that you know this this group of people or this part of the country is." always villainized and that we're actually surprised when there's somebody else who is um, when that's not the standard when it's not expected yeah and as I think we will you know quickly get into it's not that these movies are perfect and beautiful Mm -hmm. representations of rural areas they have absolutely their own issues but in kind of a different way So the first movie I want to talk about, I think, was both one of our favorites that we watched. We'd both seen it before, and that's Jennifer's Body. Absolutely. That is my favorite one on the list. (laughs) It's really good. Easily. I like it a lot. Yeah. And so if you haven't seen this movie, we, first of all, spoiler alert, we will be talking about the movie. (laughs) And we will not be holding back. Um, So, you know, go watch the movie if you haven't. But... If you maybe don't want to watch the movie, we'll give a very brief uh, summary just to get everyone on the same page. So Jennifer's body came out in two thousand nine and it's one of those movies that was super unsuccessful when it came out and then became a cult classic when everyone realized, oh, this has something is great. Cool <laughs> going on. yeah, yeah. So I guess like, okay, maybe this is like a two sentence plot summary, but we have, our main characters are Jennifer Check, played by Megan Fox, and her friend, her best friend, Needy. Long story short, we'll get into more of the details, but Jennifer becomes possessed in a sacrifice gone wrong, um, which leads her to become hungry for for men. <laughs> she becomes hungry for for killing uh, men and, and consuming the bodies of men in a demonic way. Um, and her friend, Needy has to try to to stop her but all that to be said the thing we really want to zero in on is who caused this demonic possession and it's in fact an indie band from new york city Ooh, (laughs) yeah yeah. so this band is called low shoulder (laughs) and (laughs) great name and there's the sort of main scene where our characters of Jennifer and Needy meet this band. And the band is playing at a bar in their small town called Devil's Kettle, Minnesota, which is a real small town that does exist. And yeah, so they're introduced at this local dive bar. And I don't know, Anya, what do you think of your first impressions are of of the band Low Shoulder? Yeah, I mean, it's like skinny jeans, the front man's wearing eyeliner. I mean, it's like what, this came out in 2009. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so it, it is very much the classic look. Like, you'd expect at least one of them to be wearing a fedora, but they're not <laughs> that kind of vibe. And instantly you're like, oh, I know what this is. I know who this is. It's, it's very recognizable. <laughs> yeah. And um, there's a, a great quote that I think kind of sums up what this band is about. And what sort of they're struggling with. And we'll play that quote. We come here tonight to sacrifice the body of Jennifer from Devil's Kettle. <laughs> do you know how hard it is to make it as an indie band these days? There's so many of us. And we're all so cute. And it's like, if you don't get on Letterman or some <laughs> retarded soundtrack, you're screwed. Okay. Satan is our only hope. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of, yeah, that's their motivation for, for doing what they do. They're playing at this dive bar and you sort of instantly get a strong comparison between the town that they're in um, and this band that has come to play and Jennifer's sort of obsession with the band and how different they are from Devil's Kettle. There's a couple notable things that happen before the actual failed sacrifice, which is one, Jennifer goes to get a a shot for her and and the band. It's a 9-11 tribute shooter. Oh uh, Yeah. So it comes served in two very tall shot glasses that are like resembling the Twin Towers. The shots are red, white and blue. And it kind of instantly sets up a vibe of, OK, this band from New York is coming to play in Minnesota. And in this small town in Minnesota, they have the, the 9-11 tribute shooters for the band to drink. <laughs> right. Which is just sort of a You know, it's and this is this is the thing about the movie it being sort of wickedly funny and yeah. um emphasis on wicked but you're like oh, okay right <laughs> you know the the bar is sort of this like very classic honky tonk there's in when you read the script it says that oh somebody goes and plays a Loretta Lynn song on the jukebox mm-hmm. um and so there's this sort of you know the 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 vibe of this small town bar um sort of juxtaposed with the the New York City people and i think what's really interesting about it is that Nobody else is really that impressed by them. Everyone's sort yeah. of like, OK, going on. But Jennifer is obsessed. Like Jennifer is really, really thinks that the band is cool and she's totally transfixed on them while they're singing and Needy's sort of like, whatever. And everybody else is sort of like, OK, like we're just at our bar. But she's, you know, really, really interested and invested in them. And I think to a degree that's because of their their perceived New Yorkness. Yeah, I totally agree. And one more line, one more bite that we'll we'll play for you. Which I, when I saw this in the movie, I was just cackling. Um, so here it is. Can I ask you a question? Um, why would you want to play all the way out here in Devil's Kettle? You live in the city, right? Yeah, uh, but you know, I think it's really important sometimes to try and connect with our fans in the shitty areas too. It's amazing. Yes, yeah, so when I when I heard that I was like I said I was absolutely cracking up. Um and when I went back to look through the script to make sure that I didn't hallucinate that that line, um it actually the original script says, you know, we want to play to our fans even the ones that live in rural areas. Oh, and wow. so rural was upgraded to shitty for the purposes of the, wow. of the movie. Yeah, that is I mean, I think just that change alone you can be like and that's the podcast, everyone. Like, <laughs> look, look at how they made this change for the script to movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the plot twist of it all is that Nikolai, this uh, band leader, is not actually from Brooklyn. He, oh. uh, we find out he's lying about this. That he is just another small town kid. He reveals to his bandmates that he's from a town like Devil's Kettle. In his assertion that he knows girls just like Jennifer. Because they are trying to sacrifice a virgin. And he's like, I know girls like Jennifer. I know she talks big game, but I bet she's a virgin. So all in all, he is actually a fraud. He's a fake. (laughs) A fake New York City band boy. But I mean, there's also something so New York City about that. Oh, (laughs) exactly. To be fair, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The next thing that happens in this scene with Jennifer and Meadie going to watch the band play is that a fire breaks out. Now, Mm -hmm. this fire... I think it's one of the sort of intentionally ambiguous parts of the movie, which is we don't know what or who started the fire, but we do see the band, especially the lead singer, act very undisturbed by the fire that breaks out. And throughout the movie, as we're dealing with the demonic possession of Jennifer that ends up happening, we're also dealing with the aftermath of this fire because Mm -hmm. it's just a, a town tragedy. It kills so many people. It's a small town where everyone knows everyone, kind of amplifying the tragedy of how many people were lost in this fire. But the response to it is fascinating examination of the influence of the city band. So one thing, Jennifer uh, uses the unfortunate language of calling the bar fire a white trash pig roast. Oh my god. Yep. (laughs) Needy then reflects on the country's, quote, tragedy boner for the deadly fire. The town really is reeling from this tragedy but who's profiting off of it is the band's low shoulder mm. they get fame and success by expressing a, a remorse for the town that we know isn't true we've seen them talk yeah, shit we saw about their reaction them. yeah yeah we saw them not care about the fire um yeah what do you think about this fire and the aftermath of it yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it, on a couple of levels, it's really interesting. Um, one is that for the rest of the movie, it sort of sets the scene of this collective mourning that all of these stuff, you know, all of Jennifer's victims are sort of piled onto this already really high pile of corpses. Yeah. Um That, you know, for for a small town to have lost so many people in one tragedy and then to have you know additional tragedies on top of that I mean there's sort of this collective trauma which I think the movie does a pretty good job of, of showing yeah. even while Jennifer is being horribly callous about it all and and you as the audience are sort of shocked and upset by by that mm-hmm. and I think you know if we want to step out into the real world for a second some communities are only given the, the time of day by the rest of the country if something truly awful happens whether yeah. that's a natural disaster or a serial killer or whatever it is um, and you know they have their time in the national spotlight um, and then everybody else moves on and they're sort of still stuck with this tragedy and that we could be talking about any number of of uh, communities yeah. that fit that description yeah i think that's a great point and it definitely just sort of shows who is benefiting from this like this event and their reaction to it made it on the band's wikipedia is one of the things that a character said mm. showing you know it put them on the map um but it's just a a horrible tragedy for devil's kettle that probably it's not that the the town was able to to really recover thrive after this horrible thing happened but i kind of want to go back to something that you said earlier when you were talking about jennifer being really just obsessed with this band and you were pointing out how everyone else was kind of going about their their time at the bar not supremely interested in the indie band that was playing but jennifer was locked in there's like this Mm -hmm. great scene and she's just staring at them with heart eye emojis like she (laughs) is activated she views them as kind of like an escape from from the world from devil's kettle from her her small town there's like a coolness factor to them also she's sort of set up as wanting to sleep with the band sleep with the lead singer and i think that this idea of like escapism gone wrong Mm -hmm. like wanting to finding something in an outside of the small town or rural area and like going towards that but it not being what you thought is pretty common in this like reversed urbanoya movies and one that i think it's a more recent movie that we watched that has this element of escapism gone wrong is the movie pearl This is actually from 2022, and it's an interesting movie because it's a prequel to another horror movie that's called X. It stars Mia Goth, who just amazing performance. Uh, mm-hmm. Hats off to Mia Goth. She scared me. <laughs> snap, 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 snap. Yeah, she's yeah. terrifying. She's very good. <laughs> and this movie, while a more recent movie, takes place in 1918. So a very different time, but we mm-hmm. see a really similar thing to Jennifer's body of. A young woman becoming entranced and obsessed with something in, quote, the outside world of the small town that she's in. So Pearl is is the main character, and she loves the movies, and she loves dance. Mm -hmm. She lives in rural Texas. Her father is sick with the Spanish flu, and he's completely um, incapacitated by the sickness, immobile, and can't communicate. And her mother, where they have a very strained relationship that's very intense and it just there's an unhappy family dynamic mm-hmm. that we see play out so her escape from this situation is going into town and uh seeing movies where there's these beautiful women doing these dance numbers right and this is sort of it's in 1918 so it's in the silent era of movies there's no talkies there's no sound it's the era of of big like vaudeville review and things think sort of the rockettes right where it's like all these women sort of dancing in a line with high kicks and whatever, and that's what she sees so the character of pearl we sort of see instantly as is not doing well and mm-hmm. one of the first things we we see about pearl is she has a a desire to to harm and to kill yes. <laughs> A desire that she has a lot of a lot of room until to, to she right, she lives on a farm and mm-hmm. uh it would seem that small animals go go missing in sort of gruesome ways all the time yeah um which is you know one of those classic spooky scary behaviors totally the the movie is set up in a really interesting way just in terms of the aesthetic of it and that it's really in a lot of ways sort of technicolor there's mm-hmm. um bright vegetation that's lush and almost plastic looking and it to me it like really felt like the vibe of the Wizard of Oz, just in the way that sort of technicolor scenery and setup. Obviously it's in Texas, it's not in Oz, but I was thinking about this Wizard of Oz connection. And Mm. so what I think is this is a a reverse there's no place like home moment. Mm. Because in fact she is not interested in staying in her home. She has this obsession with going specifically to Europe and going to be a dancer and to find fame and she feels that there are there are many other places like home that are in fact much better. She even has her moment of kind of a, a man behind the curtain moment because she meets a movie projectionist. Um, she loves movies and she gets to have this romance that's uh, short lived due to her murdering him, but <laughs> <laughs> a short lived romance, that, yeah, yeah, with a projectionist. So I guess you know I want to to clarify I'm not at all claiming that it's the city or it's the movies that are causing her to not be doing well. As we establish, you know, we see that she is really going through something, and I'm not at all claiming that if you watch movies and want to be famous, that you're also going to be murderous. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> it's just a fascinating betrayal that her obsession with this outside world is so different from these Urbanoia mm. things that we see. There was sort of this really intense moral panic around the very things that mm-hmm. are sort of driving and happening to Pearl. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say that that pearl's own unique psyche isn't the driving factor of of what uh sort of happened in the movie but um there was this sort of genuine fear uh of sort of the immorality of movies and uh vaudeville shows and that kind of thing spreading around the country and sort of infecting young women especially um which is of course similar to the later concerns about rock and roll and all those things that go on right so everybody's always concerned about sort of the morality of this cultural moment. I think Pearl does a really interesting exploration of that um, in addition to being completely gruesome and and very, very freaky. Yeah, absolutely. And I really like how you phrase that sort of the the moral panic part of it because it takes place in 1918. So there's also like kind of a literal, there's a, a flu pandemic. You see people wearing masks. You see when she goes into the city you know, her mother wants her to don a mask, don't get sick, don't catch this this illness, don't bring mm-hmm. it back to our area. Right. So yeah. there's like that literal don't catch a disease, but you know, the kind of the bigger thing mm-hmm. is don't catch this this bug of immorality, of sexuality is a big thing and in these things in the movie that she does. She wants, she has this like hunger for fame and kind of for an erotic oh, for, so she wants to be loved, right? I mean she she wants to be adored. I want to be loved from as many people as possible. But truth is, I'm not really a good person. Yeah. And it's very notable, I think, that the movie she watches with The Projectionist is a French porn movie. There, there's this element of of sexuality and immorality that they, they lump together with an outside world and with movies that she is always kind of chasing to her detriment. But yeah, in that way, like the the city in i think a less literal sense than jennifer's body because it's not like an indie band from new york but the city is (laughs) is set up as a place that brings quote disease whether the literal flu or a harmful immorality um that leads you to want something that maybe you can't have and i think that's really interesting Mm -hmm. and I don't know how valid of a comparison this is, but I kind of want to use this moment to talk about Frankenstein. Yeah. Let's do it. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. alive. Oh, now oh, I know what it feels like to be God. Oh. We watched 1931 Frankenstein and the kind of equivalent of the way that like movies and and dance are in pearl is kind of like modern science in frankenstein Mm, very scary very scary uh the dangers of knowledge (laughs) honestly terrifying (laughs) but yeah like the desire for more knowledge the like I mean, I don't think that Frankenstein, Doctor Victor Frankenstein, is necessarily trying to get fame from his scientific discoveries, but in the element, it's like you're trying to do something amazing, right? You're trying to create mm-hmm. life. There's definitely vanity involved. In Absolutely, it. it's not, it's not like a selfless, like I'm doing this for somebody else. Like he, he has ambition. Yeah, and it becomes monstrous, and it, it becomes the problem that ends up creating a monster and ends up bringing the evil to the small town where he's located, um, you know he discovers this kind of science while in college, in the city, and then the modern progress of science is what ends up being the detriment to all around him. Mm-hmm. So it's just, I don't know, I never thought I would be comparing Mia Gotham Pearl to, to 1931 Frankenstein, but I do think that there is this interesting element of maybe you're not taking a, a person in the city who is scary, but you're taking concepts of escaping a current life through knowledge or, or movies or whatever it is, and that mm-hmm. ends up causing problems in these movies. And I think something that's sort of so interesting, both in Urbanoia and sort of the reverse Urbanoia, rural areas are occupying something that is almost quote like 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 behind the times mm-hmm. of the city right and in both situations urban is sort of meant symbolizes progress right and whether it's scientific discovery or or film or, you know, indie music, whatever it is that you're excited about, right, urban areas have that. Yeah. Something that's true about both of these these setups, right, which I think we should can and should take issue with, um, is that they both depend on the idea of rural areas as being sort of separate from um, the modernity of the city uh, yeah. and the progress of the city, which I think is something that, you know, ought, ought to be challenged. Absolutely. Yeah. They're still like viewing them as separate and they're not... These movies are not compliments. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's not that Reverse Urbanoia paints rural areas grandly. It's that they're, they're commenting on it in a different way. Right. If you have progress of city versus lack of progress in urban, one of them is saying progress in city is good and lack of progress... Perceived lack of progress is bad and scary, Mm -hmm. Um, whereas the other one is saying progress is kind of scary and like maybe we should just keep things the way that they were before, just like they have them in rural areas which never change or progress, which is also wrong. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But, um, but yes, it is it is bringing the spook, what's bringing the scare. Um, in one sense, it's lack of progress, and in the other sense, it is progress, and and we can be afraid of both of those things because we're people and everything is scary. The very last thing I want to bring up is a movie that I think kind of is the perfect summary of all these things we've been saying because it parodies it so mm. strongly. And that mm-hmm. is a very silly movie called Tucker and Dale vs. Evil, which is a setup as a total complete parody of Urbanoia um, because the premise of this movie is that Tucker and Dale... Our two pals who have gotten, they're very excited to go to their new vacation home, which is a cabin in the woods, classic location. But the thing that happens is instantly they run into a group of preppy college kids who see them and they're sort of, they look like your classic um, country folk. You know, they're dressed in yeah. flannel. They've got a like lumberjack look going and the college kids immediately clock them. They've watched too many of these movies that we have. Mm-hmm. They see them as... Um, a threat as a murderous people from rural areas who must be out to get them but in fact what ends up happening throughout the movie is their (laughs) confusion about who tucker and dale are leads them to make assumptions that gets themselves killed all through accident they are accidentally killing themselves (laughs) throughout the entire movie which leads to a hilarious and gross (laughs) misunderstood <laughs> yes. Yeah. We have had a doozy of a day. A real doozy. Uh there we were. Yep. Uh minding our own business. Yep. Making some improvements to my new house. The new house. When all of a sudden out of nowhere, these kids started killing themselves all over my property. Yeah, this one right here. When we were watching this movie, I think we both were like Oh, this is this is great. It's commenting on all the things we've been discussing. Um, you know, the these tropes, it's it's addressing Urbanoia in such a funny way. And then, again, spoiler alerts, we get to the, the ending. We get to the the plot twist ending, which is that sort of the, the main instigator um is the lead of the college kid pack, the worst one, the most chauvinistic and obnoxious of the characters. Oh, you just want to hit him instantly. Like he's yeah. he's just awful. He sucks. <laughs> we hate him. Um, I believe his name is Chad. I oh, think. yeah, right. Which, I mean, they, they knew what they were doing. Yeah. Sorry sorry to nice Chads <laughs> out there. I'm sure there are some of you. They exist. They're real. Yeah. Um, but this Chad is not nice. But unfortunately, we both felt that this movie missed its own point by having the big plot to us be that Chad's biological father was from this, quote, group of hillbillies that was exactly the trope that that chad was afraid of of the the monstrous rural people who are there to attack anyone who comes into their area that ends up being his biological father which for us we felt like oh you were you were so close to doing something great they were so close they were so close in fact the most evil of the group is biologically from (laughs) this rural area and it just felt like It always comes back to Urbanoia. Like, that's just was the end thing was like, Mm -hmm. well, actually, you should be afraid because, look, this is the most evil one. And he was the one he he was the trope we should be afraid of. And of course, it it is a parody. It's meant to be funny. Right. Uh, But, you know, they're doing a really good job of challenging and going against. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they were almost there. And this is actually something we're going to talk about in the next episode. This is sort of Mm -hmm. a really good lead in. Actually, Susanna (laughs) is you know, the, the question of sort of the inherent degeneracy of certain people and how that is the like sort of wreaks violence on, uh, these poor, unsuspecting urban or suburban people that, that stumble into their paths. So, um, next week we're actually going full on urban, yeah. um, with, uh, three movies specifically. And then, you know, some other ones introduced as well, um, where we're going to be talking about like some of those really classic seventies urbania movies, uh, very famous, uh, sort of genre-setting movies: uh, Deliverance, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and The Hills Have Eyes. Yeah, the ending of of Tucker and Dale versus Evil speaks to that inherent degeneracy, um, which, again, they were so close to avoiding. Yeah. So I guess kind of to to wrap it all up, we got a great preview of what's coming next. But it's an interesting thing, as we talked about at the very beginning, like our relationship with horror movies was maybe not that enthusiastic of a one at first. And I think we did have a, a lot of fun watching these movies in many ways. But it's kind of a frustrating common occurrence, which is that this idea of rural people in rural areas are scary is used so much. And even in in the moments where it's flipped, it's not necessarily doing something that positive Mm -hmm. in in depicting these spaces but i think it's a really interesting comparison and i i would encourage you next time you're watching a movie to think about like who's instigating the spook i think it can be a really fun way to add some some thinking into your (laughs) horror movie watching which is what everyone (laughs) wants to be to be intellectualizing your horror movies but Uh, absolutely yeah, no, I think uh, those are really great points. And thank you so much, Susanna, for sort of leading us through the thought process around this. Yeah. The, sort of one of the benefits I think of us being sort of sort of newbies is that we get to see a lot of this for the first time. And even though we all sort of know the trope, I'd never really watched that many movies with yeah. the trope and after after watching like 10 of them in a row, um, I was sort of so grateful to get to think about what the, what the reverse of that is and sort of what the exception that defines the rule is and still sort of what that commentary actually means when it comes to, you know, real rural places. So um, thank you very much, Susanna, for, yeah. for that fascinating discussion. <laughs> Thanks for chatting with me. The Rural Horror Picture Show is a product of Rural Remix. Original music was composed by Quincy Ponver and Leo Pozel. Cover art for the series was drawn by Nat Nichols. Thank you to our executive producers, Joel Cohen and Adam Georgie, associate producer, Teresa Collins, and the staff of the Daily Yonder and Rural Assembly. This series was edited and produced by Susanna Brown and Anya Patron-Zlefian.